on today's episode of The Leadership Drives. I have cared and about and been more interested in slavery than anything else as long as I can remember. I mean, from the first time that I learned about it. And it's one of these things that like, you know, th that question, which I understand why people ask me, but it's so funny to me because I kind of think like, why, how could you not be interested in it? It is these individual stories of, you know, struggle and resilience that touch this human thing that I think, you know, we can understand in some way. There's all these empathetic, you know, connections that I feel, I think a lot of people feel when they hear these individual stories. Our mission is that we interpret the history of slavery and its legacies. And legacies are really, really important to me because I think that's, that's what I'm talking about. All of those things, those are all of those legacies. And I think you cannot understand this country if you don't understand slavery. Welcome to the Leadership Drives podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Hello, podcast family, and welcome to the Leadership Drives, the podcast where you are invited to be virtual roadies and cruise with me as I take road trips across the country to meet leaders because I want to know what drove them into leadership in the first place and what is driving them now. Yes, you heard right. I drive to meet my podcast guests in person. Whether it means a trip across the country or a drive up the New Jersey Turnpike, my goal is to build real connections and to ask the kinds of questions that make the drive worth it. This week's episode features one of three insightful conversations I had in Alabama. I was so excited about this particular conversation that it was the very first one that I planned. I drove to Wallace, Louisiana on a day so humid that it felt like more than 100 degrees, specifically to meet Ashley Rogers, the executive director of the Whitney Plantation. I wanted to know what would make a white woman want to run a plantation in the deep South amid such social and political complexity. From controversy over the critical race theory to rejecting the 1619 project, even on down to the tenor of everyday conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, there is an uphill battle to talk about race and America's peculiar institution. It was a conversation that I wanted to have. But there was an additional layer to my enthusiasm. In 2021, not only did I visit a plantation for the very first time, I visited three. I visited the McLeod and Magnolia plantations in Charleston, South Carolina, and the Warmslow plantation in Savannah, Georgia. Each of those former slave labor camps were positioned differently. And I wanted to know firsthand how Ashley was working to position the Whitney. Would it be a place of solemnity and education or a place of entertainment to hold weddings and minimize the horrors of slavery? A place to make money or something else? This leadership drive was worth the gas money and the mosquito bites. Ashley shared how she had to learn to lean into the culture of the South in order to be effective. A few good mornings and how y'all doings go a long way. 
She also talked about how her work connects to her personal passion and how that work contributes to our country and perhaps even the world. We wrapped up our conversation with some lessons to avoid burnout and perspectives on maintaining your joy when the magnitude of an endeavor is overwhelming, but your contribution to it is not appropriately appreciated. In addition to my sobering experience on the Whitney property with its sugarcane boiling pots and plantation jail, I drove five miles down the road from the Whitney to visit two more plantations one of which was the Oak Alley Plantation. The oak tree-lined walkway was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. But I couldn't help wonder whether those majestic trees had ever borne strange fruit. I hope you enjoy this drive. So tell me, how did you come to the Whitney? How did you become affiliated and then ultimately the director here? Um, so I've been um, I've been with the Whitney since we since before we opened. Okay. So I've been here for eight years now. Well, I'm just about to hit my eighth anniversary. I when I came here, we I was the <laughs> kind of the only employee. We had one other person, um, Ibrahim Asek, who is our uh, director of research now, and he had been kind of he was a college professor in Senegal and had been coming here kind of part time in the summers. They had just started to bring him on full-time before I came. And then I came in September of 2014, September 1st. And then we opened December 7th. Mm -hmm. So in that you know time period, however long that is, two months or whatever, I had to you know hire the whole staff and get the whole operation up and running. And it was a kind of a very strange, very fast-paced time. Um, so I, I took on the, the title of executive director in 2019, um, but there wasn't an executive director before that. So I've kind of always been in the director role. Okay. Um, I, my previous title was director of museum operations, but that's a title I made up because it sounded like what I did. Okay. But we were, you know, pretty much from the beginning of the time that we opened, you know, we, we had a very wealthy white founder who owned the plantation for years, mm -hmm. worked on restoring it, put 10 million into the restoration. Oh, wow. To the public. And soon after we opened in 2015, we started a nonprofit with the intention of eventually getting all of the stuff that he owned and transferring it over to that nonprofit. It took years to build a board of directors and get mm -hmm. all of the financial rules in place. And you can imagine this person has individually owned this property over 15 years. You know, like who owns all the tractors? There's, mm -hmm. you know, there were all these complicated questions. Mm -hmm. So as we were kind of, we had started doing some strategic planning towards that with some consultants in 2018, which is the point at which we figured out that I was the executive director because there wasn't anyone who did that job. I was a little uncomfortable becoming the executive director until I figured out that like, it's what I was doing. And um, that transition that he, he donated everything and that became um, official December 4th, 2019. So after that point, you know, now it's, been fully functioning as a nonprofit for two years during the pandemic and the hurricane. So it's been an interesting time to mm -hmm. kind of take over. Wow. Um, I came here from 
Colorado. I was living in, I mean, I've moved all over, but I was living in Colorado for seven years. So you came here specifically for the job? Yeah, I came here for Whitney. Well, you know, I had been living in Colorado and working for the state um, history organization there. And I wanted to move back to the South. I'm originally from North Carolina, you know, grew up in the South and grew up around history and history museums, you know, my, the thing I always cared about more than anything was African-American history and history of slavery. And I, at some point in graduate school, you know, when I was in grad school in Fort Collins, I kind of had this realization. I had gone home over break and I had gone to an African-American history site in North Carolina. And I was like, I want to go back to the South and I want to work on a plantation. I want to do the history of slavery. Um, why? Like, what about that? Because again, I'm like, wait a minute, what? So why? Like, what strikes you? I know it's like this is like the question that I get asked all the time. Why is a white? Why does a white woman care about this? Um, Enough to move across the country. <laughs> yeah, I know, and just and, and deal with all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I can't really tell. I don't have like a very artful answer for that. Like, I uh, I have cared. And about and been more interested in slavery than anything else as long as I can remember, mm-hmm. I mean, from the first time that I learned about it. And it's one of these things that, like, you know, th- that question, which I understand why people ask me, but it's so funny to me because I kind of think, like, why, how could you not be interested in it? It is the most, I mean, you know, just a moment ago when we were talking and I was, I was saying, like, about how there's terrible public transportation and things. I almost kind of joked, but I think it's true. I was like, well, it's because of plantations. I mean, and I can talk about, like, why it's because of plantations and why it's because of slavery in the South has such, you know, but the point is that, like, it is, it is these individual stories of, you know, struggle and resilience that touch this human thing that I think, you know, we can understand in some way. There's all these empathetic, you know, connections that I feel. I think a lot of people feel when they hear these individual stories. But it is also like the genesis of our history in this country, and, and there is not a single thing that is not somehow connected to this story. You know, and growing up in the South in the 1980s, you know, I always felt like. Oftentimes I equate it to like, you know, if you, uh, when you walk into a room and everybody kind of gets quiet and you can tell like they were just talking about you, mm-hmm. you know, and they mm-hmm. want to be quiet now. That's how I kind of felt the history of segregation was mm-hmm. when I was a kid growing up in the eighties. Like, you know, that was 15 years prior for at least for my teachers, all mm-hmm. my teachers, every elder in my life mm-hmm. lived through segregation, mm-hmm. you know, whichever, you know, race they were, they all experienced it and they would talk about it, but not really know how to talk about it. And there were all these kind of legacies sitting around I me, mean, literally like the, one of the towns, small town outside of, you know, where I grew up that I remember going to visit a family friend and like, Town Square still has two water fountains, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just sitting there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But it's like, all that stuff is still there. It's still there. And so, like, it, you know, it, it it really struck me as a child. Like, I, and I also think, you know, I wasn't born in the South. You know, it, racism is something that exists all throughout the whole country. Mm-hmm. But I came there as a small child, and it was like, then had to learn all of the rules that exist in a small southern town Mm -hmm. and figure out why 
all the black kids live over here and all the white kids live over here and here's why you shouldn't be friends with this person. And not that I'm getting that message from my family, but like, you know, there's this, this whole culture. Exactly. Right? Cultures like that. You don't, nobody sits you down and go, this is what you do. Yeah. You just figure it out by yeah. watching what people are doing. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, you're getting all of these kind of social cues and then, you know, I, I, I had very influential, I mean, I can think of my, my first extremely influential black teacher in fourth grade who gave us all of these assignments, you know, learning about our state's history and about segregation, about slavery. I read my first slave narrative, Harriet Jacobs, when I was 10. Of my own, I mean, I'm sitting up at night just reading it. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't take my eyes away. It's an incredibly disturbing story, but, mm-hmm. you know, she's from North Carolina, so... Um, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's always been something that I've just cared about so much. And, and here at Whitney, when I wrote the mission statement, our mission is that we interpret the history of slavery and its legacies. And legacies are really, really important to me because I think that's, that's what I'm talking about. All of those things, those are all of those legacies. And I think you cannot understand this country if you don't understand slavery. You know, I, I think I take that personally in the sense that the more I understand about our nation's history, the more I understand about my own family, the more I feel at home with myself, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, last year was my first time visiting a plantation. Despite growing up in Georgia, despite the fact that there's a plantation 20 minutes from my great-grandparents' home, I actually drove by it, um, checking out a restaurant two weeks ago. And yes. I was like, how did I just not even catch this to your point. It's like the water fountains. It's always been here, Mylena. You just never knew what it was. And literally two blocks from there is a huge Confederate cemetery. So, I mean, it's yeah. literally right here. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I thought was so amazing about that experience, I went to the McLeod plantation oh, yeah. and it gave me a new respect for my own family. Mm-hmm. Because when you realize, first of all, it was way out in the, like on the edge of town. I don't know why, where I thought they were located, but I'm like, they're not going to be downtown, <laughs> you know? And to actually see one, it gave so much context to what Reconstruction and Jim Crow actually uh, meant to my own great-grandparents. Because my great-grandparents, they were sharecroppers. Mm -hmm. Their parents were right on the edge of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I've often wondered, like, why is my family always so poor? Like, what's up with them being on the struggle bus all the time? Mm -hmm. And when you see that, you're like, I get it now. Because emancipated to go where to do what um it totally gave me new context and then it had this really interesting effect of making me feel like one of the most powerful people in the mm-hmm. world because now it's like do you know who i come from i come from a group of people who have survived all kinds of stuff yeah. i dare you to mess with me today <laughs> <laughs> i did today and then you give me coffee are you serious right. Right. i'm a force today And I think what would happen, to your point, to understand our history as a country, I think makes our future less threatening and less intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it really changes the conversation around equity and honesty and integrity with respect to how we are dealing with our current social um, political context. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about the work that you do here, what are some of the things right now that you're confronting that make this work challenging? Um, Well, you know, it's, well, first of all, we have a lot of logistical challenges right now that are caused by getting hit by a Category 4 hurricane yeah. in August and then, you know, and suffering through a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we had basically no, um, we had, because we weren't nonprofit until December 2019, mm-hmm. we shut down in March 
you know, we had no funding base. We had no, so <laughs> suddenly I had to raise all this money and like, mm-hmm. and then we got hit by this hurricane. Every single building was damaged. Mm-hmm. So it's just been one hardship after another in terms of those challenges. And that's really because I'm the executive director. That's where so much of my energy is. So everyday um, fundraising, yeah. what do you do? What does your regular day look like? Oh gosh. Well, it's, it's less putting out fires than it used to be, but um, I still do a lot of just like email putting out fires. I mean, the, the number of things that I do in a general day are just so all over the place. Like today, uh, I had to have an hour long meeting about all of the buildings on our site. I had a meeting with um, some partners from town who are cataloging collections. I was responding to um, an interest from somebody who wanted to donate a like African trade gun, like a flintlock rifle. Mm. Um, I was in a grant management webinar. I mean, it's just like, it's like totally different thing. I'm having contracts or conversations about doing rat control contracts. So, (laughs) so it's like, you know, the, the variety of things is pretty great. But I mean, I think that like, you know, it's, it's funny because we, at Whitney, you know, our, our, whole interpretation is about you know slavery from the perspective of people who are enslaved and that has become obviously increasingly fraught Mm -hmm. over the last two years it's been wild to see the kind of backlash to the 1619 project which i'm featured in we're featured in Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. uh we fully support and think is wonderful you know those people who don't like that aren't really coming here Mm -hmm. so you know we don't really get a whole lot of like on the ground pushback Mm -hmm. because typically if you come here, you want to come here, Mm -hmm. but you know, it does make our work more important and also a little more confusing, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so that's one of the other, like sort of, you know, kind of intellectual challenges. It's not like me building a fence. Right. But like we have a new education director. She started last year. She's been building out educational programming. Um, Suddenly, you know, what we're teaching in schools, even since we hired her, has become very fraught, mm-hmm. you know, and they've changed the standards just recently in the last month here in Louisiana. And uh, I don't know how you would talk about slavery. You know what I mean? It's just like things have gotten a lot more regressive mm-hmm. um, in a time when people need to hear about it more, mm-hmm. I think. So, I mean, it, it, it makes our work more important, but it also raises for me I don't know, tremendous questions about like, how does our, you know, do people keep coming with their students or are they going to be afraid to come here? Do we, are they going to incorporate the lesson plans that we're creating or are they going to be afraid to implement them or, you know? Hmm. You know, I definitely see how you might be between a rock and a hard place right now. How is your education director trying to manage that? I mean, we're just moving forward. And I tell you what, she's gotten a lot of funding in the last in the last few months. Good you know? deal. Um, so she's she's Good working deal. on a couple. She's just hired, and and we're just sort of pushing forward. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think you know what happens. May, maybe we'll find that teachers will be more interested in materials we create because they don't have as many resources. You know, so with the new rules that the state of Louisiana created, mm-hmm. is it such that you are? your teachers would have like tremendous consequences and penalties if they taught it or I don't like think they've implemented 
consequences, but it's kind of like the, um, they actually did not pass the, you know, that, that bill that went around in all these different states that was like written by a conservative think tank about critical race theory, mm-hmm. which they don't know what that means, but that's, mm-hmm. that's enough. Another yes. Conversation. <laughs> um, that did not pass in Louisiana, but the standards implemented some aspects okay. that are similar. Mm-hmm. So it's the same kind of idea about like, you know, about like, one race can't be like better than another one, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like not what we talk about at all, at all, at all, at all. At all. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, so anyways, yeah, I mean, we, we continue to move forward, but, but we're, I'm increasingly aware of how strange this, this climate is. And I think that like, you know, it's a different, it seems so strange. We've been open for eight years but it feels like a different country than mm-hmm. it was eight years ago mm-hmm. in many ways mm-hmm. and for years I was saying and believed you know that what I see happening here every day the interactions I see between people mm-hmm. um, who have come here to this site really give me a lot of hope that like mm-hmm. we're not beyond repair you know mm-hmm. I mean and I still have to think that you know mm-hmm. but it just seems like there has been so much going backwards mm-hmm. even in the last two years mm-hmm. three years that I don't know. I am. Um, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I'm afraid of where we are. And I will say when I interviewed the two ladies from the AME church, um, one of them I met actually in a church. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, I could easily walk in. It was the first time I ever questioned my safety in a church. Wow. I was like, you know, it's not my place to tell them how to manage their building, but anybody can walk in off the street here. Yeah. And I think we're seeing this uptick in violence um, yeah. as well as just rhetoric that I don't know how we are going to fix this. So as you're looking at how you're creating education and content, mm-hmm. personally, I was just thinking as you were talking, how do you get to the parents directly? Because at a minimum, I'm thinking that might be a conduit. But the question I'd like to hear you talk about a bit is how do you deal with these competing uh, versions of history? Yeah, I mean, there's really not <laughs> that much we can do. I mean, you know, the thing that we do here is continue to tell the truth mm-hmm. and hope that by existing and by continuing to interpret history the way we do and educating the hundreds of thousands of people who come here, that we're offering some kind of a counter narrative. Um, everybody is getting inaccurate representations of history, whether they agree with us or not. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's a lot out there that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think we have to just kind of keep going at it. There's, there's no other option, mm-hmm. you know. How do you maintain your sense of scholarship? Because with all of the things you mentioned from rats to this to that, I'm like, when do you have time to study? Right. Yeah. Well, and I better have time to study because I'm working on a PhD right now. So. Yeah. You better make time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You better make time. Um, yeah. I managed to finish all my coursework, but. Uh, One of my I good mean, friends, I was her accountability buddy, stalker, whatever it is you want to call it. Yeah. It was a group affair to get that done, that dissertation. Yeah. The dissertation. That's a part I'm in right now. And I'm like, should no. I put you on the list? Yeah, of people? Yeah, I'm going to send you a text every few weeks and be like, how's the, how's the chapter coming? Yeah. I mean, I, so I basically have to do all of that in nights and weekends, but, um, and I occasionally take vacation, whole vacation days and just do work on my, um, you know, research. But what's funny is that, I mean, and I keep up with things that are written about, you know, slavery in the South and things like that fairly well. But 
I strangely, and I've talked to other people who work here about this, I think I've gotten a totally different understanding of um, slavery and of the stories that we tell just by being at the plantation mm-hmm. nearly every day for eight years, you know. How so? Um, I don't know how to explain it, but there's something about like being here on the grounds and experiencing the environment mm-hmm. and experience, you know, walking in the sugar fields, you know, spending time in these spaces day in and day out and, you know, all these different buildings that we have here, some of which, you know, aren't open to the public, but I've seen the inside of a million times that you start to really spatially understand the plantation and how the plantation is arranged has a lot to do with the culture of slave owning. Mm -hmm. So there's just these things that are kind of embedded into the architecture and the spatial logics here. So like one thing that I wouldn't have really thought of until I came here is at some point, maybe two years in, I started realizing that when you look at the big house, it's like this incredibly, it's like a fortress. It's like an incredibly secure place and that all the doors lock from the inside. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's because they're scared of slave revolts, mm-hmm. that they have this house that can iron bars locked every, and there are no doorknobs mm-hmm. at all on any of those exterior shutters. Mm-hmm. So once you're locked in, there's no getting in unless you're hacking the door off. Those are the types of things that you don't read in a book. You know what I mean? You wouldn't be Very able true. to see that, you know, unless you're here. Walking in the sugar fields is, is really something remarkable. Um, because, again, you read about field work and you think about it kind of theoretically. But then when you actually walk out there and you stand in the field, and the fields here in the back are the same fields that people were working from. Slavery until 1975 when the plantation shut down. Mm-hmm. Then planted in Cain mm-hmm. the whole time. You are very small mm-hmm. compared to a sugarcane plant, compared to a row of sugarcane, mm-hmm. compared to the full length of the field. And when you're out there, it's completely disorienting. You can't see the end of the field. I mean, by the time that it's high and it's harvest season, if you're walking in between the rows, it's nothing but sugarcane all around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sugarcane itself is um, like I, when I give tours here, if I, which I don't hardly do very much anymore, but when I do, I always ask the guests to touch the plant because it's a horrible plant to touch. It's um, the mm. whole size of the leaves are covered in like razor sharp teeth. Mm. And so it cuts your skin. Um, mm. And if you're standing out there in it, it would have been cutting your, your skin. Your, your, it, you'd have to really worry about your eyes, mm. I would think, because of the way that they move. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You know, so there's things like that. And then just the heat, you know, and mm-hmm. the humidity and how it, how it is when it rains and just all of this stuff that you start to kind of be able to think about more the human experience of mm-hmm. working here, of living here, mm-hmm. that are, you know, things that are very hard to communicate if you just read about them. I think I can understand that. Just the experience I had with my first visit. I did that place at McLeod. I did Magnolia, and mm-hmm. then I did Warmslow. Mm-hmm. And to your point, there's just certain things that don't quite make sense to you until you actually see it. And I can only imagine discovering that there are no doorknobs on the mm-hmm. outside because it makes me think, well, you know the people that you are enslaving aren't these happy, jolly G slaves that we put 
subject them to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking just the chronic stress of having to oppress someone, mm-hmm. um, that is kind of like, it cuts them, but it cuts me too. Mm-hmm. Because you can't tell me you don't feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just, I, I just refuse to accept that. vision for this place? Well, what I said when we were, you know, getting our nonprofit officially taking over and off the ground and I've got my board of directors in Mm -hmm. the room with me is that I don't want this to be just a place where you can see a plantation tour and it's different. Mm -hmm. And if that's the only thing that we are, then that's boring and I don't want to be a part of that organization. Understood. (laughs) Um, I I want this to be a place that centers, you know, our kind of our the social justice vision and that also does work that's over and above and beyond just the regular individual interpretation. I had a lot of ideas about how I was going to accomplish that. All of which have been totally railroaded by the last two years. But there are things like, you know, we were uh, just starting to sponsor lecture events in the city about this topic and they're free and open to the public. So bringing the, you know, what we call public history, bringing history to the public. When you say the city, you mean New Orleans? Orleans. Okay. Um, So that's one thing. We are also, um, another thing that I'm really interested in doing more of is work with the community here. Um, One of our staff members, our director Um, communications, Dr. Joy Banner, she's going to be leaving us this year, which is terribly sad, but it's good because she's a descendant from the site and she lives Mm. right next door and she's founded a nonprofit with her sister called the Descendants Project. And um, they are doing a lot of community work. You know, they did hurricane relief, but most importantly, they're fighting uh, the development of a grain elevator, which is threatening this historic. I saw the signs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's going to be a big, you know, multi year process to try to fight that and try to get it to not come here. It will really negatively impact this black community and Whitney. Mm-hmm. Um, but with her being, you know leaving Whitney, I really want to strengthen that mm-hmm. that connection as a way to think about how we can do different types of community work and be more, you know, available, present, you know, essential to the Wallace community. Awesome. How are you making sure that the other employees, um, as well as the members of your board, how are you getting them to be aligned and understand your vision and then to adopt it as their own and not just, you know, this is what Ashley wants us to do? Right. Because, you know, then that might be a little bit of a harder sell. So how do you get everybody to own it? Well, I mean, I think that, like, I really don't think I have that much to do with it, actually. I mean, Whitney is sort of a force, you Mm -hmm. know, and uh, before I took over as ED, you know, I'm, I'm really in, in many ways carrying out the vision of our founder. Okay. And our founder was the person who has the, you know, he's the person who decided to open this place and created us a museum focused on slavery. And everybody who comes here and works here is doing it on purpose mm-hmm. because they want to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we have a lot of incredibly, you know, talented um, and dedicated staff who could do any number of things if they wanted to, Mm -hmm. um, but choose to be here because they're committed to what we do here. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
you know, everybody sees the importance. I mean, everybody, I think, feels like they're a part of something that's bigger than themselves, including myself, you know. And everybody is really, I think, very engaged with, you know, what's going on in the outside world and really sees the imperative. And for some people who work here, it's personal. You know, we have several people who are descendants from the site, so it really matters to them to take care of this place. Mm -hmm. And for other people like myself and, and some other folks from New Orleans, it's more of just a, a calling to the mission. I hear you. I hear you there. Um, would you say that there's anything in particular that you do to keep people motivated? I get it that their personal commitment yeah. is there, but given the challenges with the pandemic, mm -hmm. with the changes in funding and mm -hmm. the national rhetoric, anything in particular that you find yourself um, doing to kind of keep them? I'll tell you what, I really care about everybody here. Okay. And I don't know. I mean, I feel very lucky that they've been so committed you know, when we shut down in March of 2020, we were shut down for three months and then we reopened on a limited schedule. And we had zero revenue because mm. all the money that we had was coming in at the door. We had no outside sources of funding, whatever. We don't get funding from the state, from the parish. We, you know, if, if we're getting grant money, it's because we're applying for it. It's usually program related, not general operating. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we had a teensy bit of PPP funding in 2020 and 2021, but, it, you know, it covers teensy three quarters of a month. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. But that whole time we were closed um, for three months, I kept everybody paid at their full rate. And uh, it didn't matter where they, you know, if they were working the front desk, they were still getting paid. Amen. We reopened uh, Juneteenth of 2020. And... It was truly heartbreaking to reopen. We reopened that day and we actually had a little bit of business. And by three days in, I realized we can't do it. Mm. We, like we can't afford to stay open. We were barely making any money at all. I've got my full staff back and I had to call everybody in. And after three months of paying them all, I had to have a conversation that I had to reduce everybody's hours. We went down to four days a week. Everybody, including myself, took a pay cut. And we had a few staff who had been there the least, you know, least seniority who got furloughed. Mm. It was, I mean, it, it, it broke my heart. It was horrible to have to do that. And people had a lot, a surprising amount of grace and support. Mm -hmm. um, and you know what? In the end, pretty much everybody's back. I mean, the people who like, some people were like, I'm moving out of town, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but mm. we brought everybody back. We came back to full time. And then same thing. I had another three month closure because of the hurricane. We kept everybody paid at their full rate the whole time. I think people know when you care. They absolutely yeah. know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's, I, I, I think this is, I try to make this a place where people feel happy to be here, mm -hmm. where they feel supported. Mm -hmm. You know, they might not always have a great day and sometimes people annoy you and sometimes maybe I annoy you, but that's part of it. As long as at the baseline, you know that I'm there with respect and support. So like, you know, I, I've had bad jobs in the past mm -hmm. and I had one job in particular where, like I remember, just crying at work, just feeling so like, I felt like nobody had my back. 
my manager didn't like me, you know, mm-hmm. he, I felt like I was getting punished for things that I didn't know why, you know, it was always just, it was such a contentious environment. I hated going there and I felt like I hate this job. I can't stand being here. And I never, never, never want anyone who works for me to feel that way. I understand. (laughs) That actually is part of the reason I do what I do. I believe that as leaders, we have an obligation to create a space where people can come to work and do their best work without feeling oppressed. I mean, at the end of the day, it's as simple as that for me. Because if you've ever had to go to work and cry in your car, you know that is not what you want to do all day. And every day is tantamount to climbing up a cold... How does somebody put it? It's like backing up a hill with cold tar, you know, just stuck in this muck because it affects how you think and how you work. So I totally get that. I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's difficult. I mean, and also I have had to learn a lot of that on the job. I mean, I I actually wrote a chapter for a book uh, about inclusive leadership. And one of the things that I talked about is having to like unlearn those Mm -hmm. toxic lessons Mm -hmm. because weirdly, Having that experience almost, especially in my early years, almost made me feel like, oh, that's something that everybody experiences. It's just hard. You know, it's just hard and you have to just deal with it. And that's just me internalizing bad messages from, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and I had to really unlearn that and really like let go of that. And, 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 uh, I, I really, when I first started, I really didn't like managing people. Um, I had a really hard time with conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know how to handle it if people weren't, you know, doing what they were supposed to do. I didn't know how to talk to people the right way. People oftentimes think that I am like, I, I don't know, people interpret me as being sort of like rude or severe in mm-hmm. some ways. And there's a cultural difference too, like coming to the deep South, mm-hmm. like, you know, I was raised in the South, but I'm essentially a Northerner. Mm-hmm. My whole family is. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn the, like, really the niceties of the good mornings and the, <laughs> you know, doing all of that. And I didn't mean anything bad, but it's just, you know, you have to learn how to do that stuff and, mm-hmm. and how to exist in, in a different culture. Mm-hmm. And also across racial lines, because mm-hmm. I am a white boss and it's not mostly white people who work here. Mm-hmm. And I had to, like, it was real hard for me to learn slowly over those first few years. Like people are not always seeing you. Mm-hmm. They are oftentimes seeing a white lady walking mm-hmm. around telling them what to do. And they've seen those before mm-hmm. and they know what those are like and they're terrible. Mm-hmm. So that's like a whole other thing that was really challenging. And, and the further I've gone along, now I'm supervising like only upper level staff which is easier and I like a lot better. Um, <laughs> partially because I'm not dealing with the kind of like scheduling, like nobody's being like, I can't work today. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> thing. Um, but also because I really enjoy the like coaching aspect of it. So people, I enjoy people bringing me things they don't know how to deal with and we can talk through things and figure out how to, you know, reach a resolution, mm-hmm. which I have to do way more than like, you know, just saying you didn't come on this day. And so you need to follow these rules. I don't have to do as much of that. Yeah, I think the people part, the better you become and more experienced you are as a leader, you recognize the people stuff mm-hmm. is the job. Yeah. And what I hear a lot of leaders say is that, I don't have time for that. It's like, no, 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 that is the job. Yeah. Um, because if we just needed someone to do tick boxes, 
well, we might not need you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing about leading senior level staff members? Uh, I think I was like really just surprised at how relieving it was and how, how much easier it was, how much easier it came to me. And part of that is that I had had several years of experience by that point. And so, um, and I also started to really reach out and get help from other people, um, out, you know, within the field, just different people who, who kind of served as mentors to me. But, um, I think that like the thing that I figured out when I started dealing with upper level staff that is true of supervising anyone is kind of like what you were saying, but it's like, um, you know, strangely, the work I was doing in therapy <laughs> was effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, trying to figure out my own, you know, my own motivations and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. I started to realize like, oh, wow, like we are all bringing our own traumas. We're mm-hmm. bringing our family dynamics. You know what I mean? We're all bringing that. all that to work. And you think like, and I'm not the type of person who's like work as a family because it's not, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it is optional. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. come and go. Okay. I'm paying you. You don't have to be here. This is. I think that can be an unhealthy expectation that we'll be family. Particularly if your family construct is not one that you like. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, wait exactly. a minute. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that people bring their own family dynamics oh, they to do. work. They do. They bring their parent things. They bring, you know, all of these things. And, and learning that, like, some people, and I'm like this too, so, you know, I had to figure this out. Like, some people just don't trust anyone in authority, even mm-hmm. if they generally trust you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing that's been I have wild. to say to leaders, <laughs> if you never have real strong disagreements with your staff, somebody on the team is lying to you. Right. Um, because of that power dynamic. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. I often say all leadership is personal. Yeah. We just happen to do it in professional spaces sometimes. Yeah. You can't leave part of who you are at home and then come to the office. That just does not happen. Right. Since you mentioned mentoring, that was actually a great segue into my next question. If you were going to be in a reverse mentoring program mm-hmm. where typically, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that concept, where someone who has less experience than you were uh, put in a position to teach you something, what do you think wow. someone um, with less experience could help you with if you were in such a program? Wow, that's a really interesting concept. (laughs) Well, I mean, here's the thing. There are some ways in which that's kind of at play here. Okay. Because until I I recently hired my director of education, she's the only person I've ever hired that had museum experience. Nobody here had ever worked in a museum before. And... Many people here had no academic background mm-hmm. in this history. So there are things that like I know quite well mm-hmm. and that uh, I've hired people who don't know those things that well. Mm-hmm. But I hired people who have totally different skills that are much more experienced in different areas than I am. And I've been very happy to learn from them about their particular expertise and how they see things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a really good example is our director of operations who has far less museum experience than me, but she has far more um, hospitality and operations experience. Gotcha. And she really sees things. I mean, this is, she is such an, inc- she's so skilled at being able to see 
the big picture. Not everybody is a big picture thinker. She's mm-hmm. also a process thinker. Mm-hmm. And she's really, really good at being able to say, like, if we do this, five steps down the road, here's where we're going to end up, you know? So it's been, I've maybe dodged your question a little bit, but I, I think that nobody is not skilled at anything. <laughs> you know? Everybody, if people have less skill than you or less experience than you in one area, it's probably because they're more experienced in something else. Mm-hmm. And I really, really like having that diversity of perspective. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also think it's really unusual in a museum setting. I think museum people get really, really kind of in a rut about hiring people within our field Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I have hired people almost exclusively from outside of our field Mm -hmm. and I think we do really interesting work in part because people come from all these different backgrounds well you know too when you talk about hiring people from all these different backgrounds that's the beauty of diversity not in terms of just representation but different Mm -hmm. ways of framing problems yeah um and I think that's pretty useful um with that being said, a uh, couple of questions, and then I'm almost out of your hair. <laughs> um, when you think about how you got to this role, I know you said that there's no particular process. If you had to give advice to someone about, hey, find the thing that sets you on fire. Yeah. If you had to tell them, do these one or two things, and maybe that'll help you. What would you say that one or two things is? Well, hmm. I mean, I have, I have actually you know, um, mentored some younger people in the field, which is something that I really enjoy doing. I, cause I try to, I love to, um, help people avoid some annoyances I had to go through, you know? So I give them some sort of like particular, um, expertise, but one of the things that I usually say to people who are interested in specifically museum work is, and they're young and they're passionate and they care, is I really try to encourage them not to be the person who has to fix it all. So especially young people of color are very interested in working in a museum. They get a job where somebody might be likely to hire them because they want to do new stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they end up in a majority white organization where they're the person who's doing it all and Mm -hmm. they are bumping up against a brick wall and they're having a hard time with the board and they're having a hard time with funding and they're having a hard time getting buy-in and there's all these issues that we have in the museum world that are kind of really centered on this issue. And then what happens is we have an incredibly talented person who says, forget it, I'm leaving, I'm not going to mm-hmm. keep going. Yeah. Because they burn themselves out because mm-hmm. they take on so much responsibility and feel like, and even if it's not that racial dynamic, which is common in mm-hmm. our field, that almost happened to me. I mean, I was that person too. I was young and I was driven and I didn't care and I would work all the time and nobody was caring as much as me Mm. to my detriment, Mm. you know, that Mm. I was taking on that stress and there was no reason for me to do that in a job making that much money. Awesome. You know what? I hear you. I hear you. And as a matter of fact, that segues perfectly into my very last question. How is it that you make sure you save some of who you are, some of what you have to offer for you? How do you make sure you're not pouring from an empty cup? I take days off and I take vacations and I'm very serious about it. And I tell everybody who works here that I want them to do the same thing too. I really, I have been at my worst when I've had no work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And I still struggle 
with that sometimes. I'm saying this on the back of taking three weeks off, so please don't feel sorry for me. (laughs) I took a two-week vacation, then I went to a conference. But, you know, I spent, you know, I was checking email the whole time, and I came back, and I was like, is everybody mad at me? Like, (laughs) I took all this time off. Um, But, you know, I really, I feel like I really guard that. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I implemented immediately as soon as I took over is I got us a cell phone plan, and I have two cell phones. And that allows me to turn off the work phone. Indeed. And, uh, you know, and I just don't look at it on the weekends. And I'm not distracted by a horrible email that came in from an insurance adjuster when I'm trying to play Animal Crossing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So keeping those, like, keeping that off time, my time, Mm -hmm. is really important to me. And the the, the other side of that is that, like, because I do so much of that, because I take, you know, my own mental health and my own, you know, physical well-being so seriously, if I do decide to do extra work, that's on me and it's a choice I made. I'm going to come in this weekend and I'm not feeling grumpy about it Mm -hmm. because I'll just take some time off someplace else. And I know that that's a bargain I'm making with myself. Nobody is saying we expect this. Absolutely. You know, I hear you. I think that is wonderful that you have decided that you're going to design the life and the professional life that you want to have on and off the clock. I think it's a wonderful thing to do because when we forget that we're back at what you said, mm-hmm. I met my worst when I am giving everything to everyone except me. Yeah. That is not sustainable. And I don't think it allows you to create a healthy organization. And with that being said, thank you for your time. I am absolutely impressed with the amount of work that you all have been able to do here. And I love the way you are approaching um, jumping in here, dealing with all of your challenges, but also bringing in people whose backgrounds might otherwise suggest that they shouldn't be here Mm -hmm. and that you're figuring out how to make it do what it do, so to speak. (laughs) Good deal. Thank you so, so much. I totally appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe, share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Leadership Drives.